so if you're just joining us for this series in Hebrews, we've been talking about how Jesus is greater. And uh, this morning we see that he provides us with a greater possession than anything this world could possibly offer us. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 32, and we'll read through the end of chapter 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Lord, would you bless your word to us this morning? Would you continue to show us that Jesus is greater? He's greater than all of our possessions and that we can know and be confident on that day when he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, this morning, as we look at this passage, it's, it's referring to uh, the former days, uh, you know, sort of looking back at some of the ordeals, some of the, the, the affliction, the pain that the, the recipients of this letter had, had gone through. Um, and it also references, uh, through quoting the prophet Habakkuk, uh, future days, uh, the day when the Lord returns, when when he makes everything sad come untrue and, and he dries our tears and removes all crying and mourning and pain forever. Uh, so certainly we're aware that, that, that we live in a fallen world, there's pain, but, uh, but there's a, a world that's coming that is going to be painless. Uh, and in the meantime, we live by faith. Uh, we, we put our faith in the one who is coming. So uh, yeah, let's look at these future, I mean, these former days for starters, and then we'll talk about the future days. Uh, and what it means to live by faith. But as you see there in verse 32, um, you know, we're being reminded of what uh, hardships and struggles and sufferings, uh, the people who are receiving this letter, the Hebrews, what, what they had endured in, in even reproach and affliction and, and being partners, you know, with those so treated, maybe not then the, some of them themselves, but, but loved ones, friends, etc. But what you notice here too, which almost seems... Like, how do, these, how do these go together? Because on the one hand, there's, there's really blunt language about reproach and, and affliction and plundering of your, your property and, and suffering, right? You've you got those topics. And, and then woven through there, you also have the reality of, in verse 34, like compassion, you know, th compassion that's thriving uh, and, and joyful, joyfully accepting the plundering your property, uh, you know, further verses talk about confidence. So, so in the midst of, of really hard things that this um, group of Christians are experiencing, there's beautiful things that are happening. 
uh, and the fruit of compassion, the fruit of joy, and the, the, the fruit of confidence is growing. Um, and and they almost, why is that happening? Are, are those compatible? They, we maybe from a, a simplistic perspective would think no, but, but a biblical perspective tells us yes. Uh, and and you, know, you know as well as I do sometimes that, that these things can thrive in adversity and they can actually shrivel in prosperity. So how does that work? Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. So let me just sort of kick things off by, by asking you to kind of reflect with me. How, how is it, how, how has it happened that, that somewhere along the line, I don't, I don't know who started this rumor, <laughs> I don't know where the origin story uh, you know, got its start, but, but some, somewhere along the line, somebody started breathing out this little rumor that, you know what, if you follow Jesus, if you become a Christian, all your wildest dreams will come true. Um, sounds like a, a bad campaign speech. Sounds like Napoleon Dynamite, you know, Pedro getting up in front of the high school saying, you know, vote, vote for me and I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. Vote for Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. Who started this? Where, where did that lie come from? Well, I mean, I, I don't, while that is certainly true in eternity, we, we relish that reality. That in eternity, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one has even conceived of how beautiful and blissful um, how the new heaven and the new earth will exceed our wildest dreams. Um, but on this, this planet, this, this existence south of heaven, no way, right? We, we know that following Jesus does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, when Jesus says to follow me, he also has this little bit about taking up our cross and accepting suffering, even adding suffering, the suffering of, of sacrificial living, the suffering of bearing one another's burdens. And so we know that, that becoming a Christian and following Christ does not exempt us from suffering. And man, you know what? There's even those who suffer not just, be, not just in spite of being a Christian, but because they are Christians. Because they follow Jesus, they are suffering. And, and that is the suffering of persecution, right? So how did we ever think that, that, that somehow, if you, if you follow Jesus, all, all your wildest dreams come true. How do we ever even think that this was the teaching of the Bible? All you have to do is look at the, at the apostles themselves. I mean, we're, our faith is built, as, as it says, on the foundation uh, of, of the apostles and the prophets, right? And so what happened to so many of the prophets? They were persecuted. What happened to so many of the apostles? M maybe even all of them. We're not sure about the apostle John, who we think perhaps died in exile of old age on Patmos, wrote Revelation, but we, we really have some decent evidence that the rest of the apostles were all actually killed for their faith, martyred, suffered because of Jesus, right? Uh, all you got to do is read Acts chapter 12. You look at verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, one of the twelve, with the sword. And when he saw 
that it pleased the, the, the Jewish population, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. You know, Peter goes to prison. Actually, he's miraculously delivered in Philippi. Um, and, and then there's, there's Peter and Paul, and they both were, uh, were uh, church historians believe, martyred in 66 AD. Um, it's believed that Peter he, uh, was, was, be, uh, was crucified upside down. Uh, Paul, we believe, um, decent evidence, was beheaded in Rome. Uh, and, and so on and on it goes with the rest of the apostles. Just listen to Paul. Paul's words to Timothy, and, and try to, you know, reckon with me, how, how, have, how has the church come to believe that if we follow Jesus, we'll be immune from suffering? When Paul says explicitly, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, rather, you know, talking to Timothy, his disciple, join with me in suffering for the gospel, for, by the power of God. Like, how's that for an invitation? How's that for an altar call? <laughs> How's that for a church growth strategy? Hey, everybody, come and, and join with us as we suffer for the gospel. Uh, that doesn't seem to get as much traction. So we'd rather tell people, hey, if you just kind of walk the, walk the aisle and sign the card, all your wildest dreams will come true. Look, it, we just have to remember the context. Yes, in eternity, beyond our wildest dreams, not so much right now. Um, we're, we're, we're in a fallen world. We suffer just like everybody else does. In fact, sometimes Christians are suffering more. We still suffer. Um, the Hebrews are, are still suffering. This, you know, the author's not just referencing former days, but as we will see in chapter 12, the author's inviting his audience to consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know, you haven't been martyred yet, but obviously they're still suffering. They're still, suff they're, they're still being persecuted. So the former days are not so former, right? They haven't stopped. Not for the original readers of Hebrews, and really not for us either, 2,000 years later. But the church today globally continues to suffer even to the point of shedding blood, uh, even to the point of, of martyrdom. Um, there's an organization called Open Doors, and they monitor the, the global church. They, they're a lookout group for persecution, for human rights. Um, and last year's report, what they documented was at least 360 million Christians live in nations where there are high levels of persecution and discrimination. Uh, Christians are targeted. And so if you look globally, that adds up to about one in seven Christians worldwide. One out of seven of our brothers and sisters are suffering and are being exposed to suffering because they live in these communities and countries uh, where those persecution levels are higher. Uh, this means one in five believers in Africa, two in five in Asia, one in, one in 15 in Latin America. So if you just get down to brass tacks, um, Open Doors documented at least 5,600 martyrdoms. Uh, Christians who were killed because they're Christians just last year. People who have lost their lives 
because they said yes to Jesus. And uh, additionally, uh, over 2,100 churches were, were either attacked or, or vandalized or burned or closed. Uh, and, you know, the, the numbers continue. Over 124,000 Christians being forcibly displaced from their homes, uh, from, from their villages, uh, even just entirely from their countries. So of those 124,000, 15,000 of them were forced to be refugees, forced to flee their countries, forced to look for a brand new home and a brand new country. Um, and these are numbers that are historically through open doors. Uh, this organization is known for being conservative in its estimates. They're not, they're not exaggerating. These are probably uh, numbers that would be on the low end. So I, I'm visual probably like a lot of you all. You appreciate, you know, all right, so what does this look like? Um, here's a map that just shows you what it looks like uh, across the globe and places where it's particularly dangerous to be a Christian. There's about 50 of these nations that are highlighted from various levels, from high to medium to, to low levels of persecution. And the, the, the bright red ones are extreme levels of persecution. There's about 11 of those countries. Uh, of course, you're probably familiar with North Korea, but this includes Somalia, uh, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria. Nigeria actually is where overwhelmingly the number of martyrs um, came from last year. Uh, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, and India. So this is, the, this is the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world, and yet, you know, here we are, and we're in Waynesboro, Augusta County, wherever you, you live, and do, do you and I experience persecution? Have we yet resisted to the point of shedding blood? Probably not, right? And so we might be tempted to sort of hear Hebrews 10 and go, I'm not really sure how this relates to me. Too bad for them. You know, I feel bad, but... But, but what, what does this say to, to us at Tabernacle? It probably says about the same thing as it, as it would if, if you were to come up to me and tell me that somebody in your family was really, really sick. Like needed to go to the hospital kind of sick. Like, like our sister Karen, you know, who's at UVA, and they're trying to figure out how do they, how do they minister to her heart condition. So if you have somebody in your family who's really, really sick, that doesn't just, yeah, that one person sick, you might not be sick, but you feel the burden of that illness. You feel the weight of that condition. That one person in your family or that one person, maybe it's a roommate who, you know, you, you all share this living, you're not going to just let them suffer alone. You're going to you're gonna pitch in, you know, you need to go to the hospital, can I get you anything? Do I need to go to the store for you? You're like, you Everybody feels the burden. Everybody's partnering in how do we bring relief to this situation? And I, and I need you to remember that as, the, as Christians, we're all part of the same family. I mean, Hebrews goes on later on in chapter 13 to tell us to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, right? In solidarity with them, suffering with them as those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. And, and that's an allusion to what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer 
together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You are the body of Christ, individually members in it. So we're interconnected. And we need to remember our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Uh, in fact, uh, you can be a part of a prayer meeting uh, coming up next month in October. Uh, Ruth Graham's hosting it. It's called The Gathering. There's information in your bullets and about that, that prayer meeting. Um, so just want to acknowledge, like, it's still happening. Um, these aren't just former days. Uh, these are present days. And we want to also be mindful of the future um, and, and what's to come. And in verse 34, Hebrews tells us that you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then again, you know, there's that Habakkuk quote talking about when, when the Lord returns. And so we have to be mindful of our better possession that is coming. We have to remember our future days. If we're not going to shrink back, if we're going to have the ability to hold on, we have to know what is our possession, what is going to be given to us in the future. Um, I, I suppose one way to think about this, since it's talking about sort of your, your property being plundered, you know, maybe their, their homes are being confiscated, they're being kicked out and displaced, right? What, what would happen if, if you lost your home? Like, think about what, what is your home worth to you? Uh, another way to, to, to wrap our minds around this is to just think about our home maybe the same way that we would think about getting a starter vehicle for uh, if you have a son or daughter who's turning 16. And, and many of you have been in this situation where you know that, that kid's getting older. By the time they're, they're turning 15, they're starting to think about getting those keys, right? They're starting to think about freedom and not having to be chauffeured around by mom and dad. And, oh, it's so embarrassing or whatever. Meanwhile, they have no idea that mom and dad are more eager for that 16th birthday than the kid is because then they don't have to be a glorified Uber driver anymore. And everybody's trying to think about, okay, how do we get this kid some wheels uh, so that uh, everybody's off the hook? Well, most parents, I, I, and, I, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, are not going to go to the new car lot to buy that brand new driver a super expensive set of wheels. Instead, they're going to run to the used car lot. They're going to be checking you know, the marketplace and looking for some kind of, some kind of beater, something with some dings on it. You, know, you want it to be reliable. You don't want it to break down on the kid. But, uh, but, you, but you certainly don't want to be anxious about, oh, don't scratch it. Oh, don't get a dent in it. Because you, we know that call is coming. We know that, you know, little Johnny, little Susie is going to be calling us up saying, ah, I, I, I hit the mailbox or I, I, I scratched, you know, the, the side of the, the barrier or the parking garage or what." You know that call is coming. Some little fender bone, whatever, right? So we need to think clearly about our earthly possessions sort of in the same light, like it's expendable. We don't want to put our hope in these things. I don't want to diminish in any way, um, you know, the, the, there's a big difference between, you know, losing a car and, and losing a home. Um, some of you, I think, perhaps have been through the trauma 
of a house fire or, or flood or, or you know, vandalism or even burglary, and, and that, that is traumatic. But what we're being called to is sort of contextual kingdom living. We have a better possession, right? The, the text says something else here that, that, again, helps us contextually like, how should we be thinking about our lives and our possessions and our security and our safety and our suffering? I mean, pay attention. Verse 34, it says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And that's a huge clue for how we should be regarding our stuff. This doesn't describe some sort of stoic calculation of your net worth. Like, oh, well, you know, okay, it's really all right. I'm, 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 still, I'm still doing okay. There's, this isn't just painting, uh, uh, putting lipstick on a disaster. No, this is genuine joy. There's real joy going on here despite losing something, you know, valuable. How is it possible to have joy that your house has been plundered. What, what kind of faith gives us that sort of deep roots that, that transcends our circumstances, even flourishes in spite of, of, of pain and, and suffering? And I, I, all I can say is maybe it's helpful to go back to the, um, you know, your 16-year-old driver. It's one thing to get a call from your 16-year-old saying, hey, I scraped the, the, the side of the door you know, at the parking garage. It's an entirely different scenario to get a call from the state trooper saying your son or your daughter was involved in a 10-car pileup on 64 involving a tractor-trailer. What's your very first question to that police officer? How's the car, right? <laughs> oh. How's my son? How's my daughter? Your, your, your kid's okay. They're, they're, they're at Augusta. They're at the ER. You should go there, but they're okay. They're a little scratched up, but they're okay. And what is your reaction? Joy unmitigated joy. You are just so thankful and happy that the thing you love the most, the person you love is okay. You don't care about the car. The car is worthless compared to the value of that person. And this is what gets at the heart of Christianity. What's at the heart of your faith? What gives us joy at the end of the day? What, what grows the fruit of the Spirit in us? Love and joy and peace and patience, uh, patience and compassion. What, what grows these things in us? Like people have a lot of different ideas about uh, what's at the center of Christianity. And, it, and, and some would argue that, well, it's, it's our, the, the rules and the commandments that you have to keep. And okay. And others are going to say, no, 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 it's really what's at the center is, is, is our doctrine, and you have to believe these things, and okay, there's things to believe. And others are going to say, no, no, there's these values and, and our mission, and, and, and on and on, and, and that's what they're going to argue for. Okay. And, and without 
question, of course, you know, Christianity comes with a, a set of rules. We have commandments. And of course, there's doctrine that we believe. We want to, to believe what God wants us and what he's revealed. And of course, there's mission and there's values. But do you know that every other religion in the world has things to believe and rules to keep and, and purpose, you know, things that they're telling everybody to do? All religions have that. That's not at the heart of Christianity. That's not what the center of Christianity. What's at the center of Christianity? What does Christianity have that no other belief system has? At the center of Christianity, at the heart of our faith, is Jesus. He's the center. He's the center of heaven. He should be the center of our attention. He should be the center of our lives. He should be the center of our friendships. He should be the center of our families. He should be the center of our workplace. He should be the center of our hope. And if he's at the center, he can never be taken away. That's where our joy comes from. Let everything go, right? Listen to 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When Jesus is at the center of our faith, we are saved. We obtain the salvation of our souls. Here's the litmus test for Christianity. And I don't say this glibly. I don't say this lightly, but if your world falls apart and you lose everything, but you still have Jesus, you can still rejoice. Because your greatest possession hasn't even been touched. He's our pearl. He's our treasure. He's the kingdom. He's the reward, right? Look at verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, and you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Nobody can touch our reward. Nobody in all the world and all the persecution that's going on, nobody can touch the center of Christianity. Uh, nobody can take away our treasure. This is why it's, uh, Hebrews keeps telling us to hold fast, don't let go. It tells us not to throw away our confidence. It tells us not to shrink back. Um, last week we were looking at those, those difficult verses, right, about you know, trampling underfoot the, the Son of God and, and warning us not to do that. Don't turn back. Um, and, and they are not going to receive their reward. Why? Why is Hebrews uh, 10, verse 20, 10, chapter 10, verse 29, if you want to look at it, if you've got Hebrews open, if you look at verse 29, it's telling us not um, to trample underfoot the Son of God. They're not going to receive the reward. Why? Because, well, He is the reward. And if they've trampled their reward underfoot, yeah, there's, there's no reward. It's not that, oh, well, you trample the Son of God underfoot, and so you don't get your reward. Well, that, that's the reward, right? He's the center. Listen, um, a long time ago, one of our, our fathers in the faith, a uh, pastor named um, Richard Baxter, wrote a book. Uh, he was sick a lot, and this book really is a compilation of his meditations on his sickbed you know, throughout his life and ultimately his deathbed. 
And it was published under the title, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And, and Richard Baxter, in one of his meditations, said, I think saints ought to, to meditate on and, and think about heaven for at least half an hour a day. <laughs> How's that? What if you were to build into your routine, I'm going to set aside from 8.30 to 9 every night, uh, excuse me, honey, I, I need to go, and I'm, I'm going to go meditate on heaven right now, and I'll, I'll be back, you know, same every single day, every day. What, how would your life be different if, if we were to do that? I, I, I think it would be an interesting challenge. This is an extended quote, so bear with me, but I, I just think it's beautiful, and so I want you to hear it. He says, it's a, is, is it a small thing? Is it a small thing in your eyes? To be loved by God, to be the son, the daughter, the spouse, the love, the delight of the King of glory. Is that a small thing in your eyes? Christian, believe this and think about it 30 minutes a day. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting of the love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to glory, that love which was weary and hungry and tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, pierced, which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, died, that love will eternally embrace you. He's our reward. He's our treasure. And He will give us the endurance we need to preserve our souls to not shrink back and to meet with Him. I read to you 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's the end of his epistle, chapter 5. He says, after you have suffered a little while, that's really all our lives are. It's a very little while in the span of eternity. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. If you're like me, I, I get anxious about the prospect of, of suffering, right? Suffering as a Christian. Will I endure? What will happen? You know, would I have the faith in that moment to hold on to Jesus. And I, I, I think, I don't think those who are persecuted or have some kind of superpower, but I do think they have the same Holy Spirit that we do. And when that day comes, if that day comes for any of us, that same Holy Spirit is gonna give us the, the strength and the stamina that we need. John Piper speaks about this. He wrote a book called Future Grace and he talks about the God of all grace that Peter was just referencing here as the one who will sustain us. We don't have to come up with these resources on our own. We believe that God lives and he lives in us and he gives us his spirit to help us in our time of need. 
And Piper writes, the assurance that he will not delay beyond what we can endure, that assurance comes from all grace. God is not the God of some grace. He is the God of all grace, including the infinite, inexhaustible stores of future grace. Faith in that grace is the key to enduring on the narrow and hard way that leads to life. Do you believe that God is giving you grace on a daily basis, just like he gave manna to the Israelites? Do you believe he will give us what we need to face difficulty, to face hardship, to face suffering, even persecution? He's the God of all grace. He's not stingy. He's not forgetful. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's infinite. And he promises to bless us so this passage ends by this call, um, this quote from Habakkuk, to live by faith. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back, right, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. You know, you, you, you do wonder what... Um, why? Why do, why do people give up and, and turn back? And, and you know them, I know them, maybe they're family members, maybe they're friends who uh, once upon a time, they were Christians. Maybe they even were instrumental in your, your own testimony. Bentry was sharing about somebody who was very instrumental in his growing uh, to be a Christian who you know, we're not sure about his status right now. Maybe you have somebody in your life you know has turned back from following Jesus. And, you know, with, with a context of, of being understanding of there's lots of things we don't understand, you know, we want to be aware that we, we don't, we're not the judge, we're not, you know, calling any, any uh, calling the shots and making final decisions, but you have to wonder what exactly was at the center of their faith? If Jesus is at the center of your faith, um, he's inexhaustible. And he fills us and he rewards us and he blesses us. He, our reward is him. And so is it possible that those who are turning um, and, and shrinking back and, and turning away, maybe he's not quite at the center at all. And maybe they were believing that rumor, that lie, whatever, that, you know, if you follow Jesus, all your wildest dreams are coming to come, come true. And if something else is at the center, if Jesus has been supplanted, then obviously that thing becomes an idol. It's going to disappoint us. It is not going to fulfill us. And by faith, we put Jesus at the center. This is what it means to become a Christian. You trust him as your sin-bearing substitute, the one who takes our sin on himself, he died, he was buried in a tomb, he rose again, and through faith in him, by faith in him, trusting in him, the righteous will live by faith. We're united to him. And we gain new life because of his new life. We gain status in heaven because of his status. We gain a righteousness that doesn't come from our works, but comes from his works. That's why the righteous will live by faith. To to quote Richard Baxter again, oh, that I might see his kingdom come. It is the characteristic of his saints 
to love his appearing and to look for that blessed hope. It is the characteristic of Christians to have Jesus at the heart of your faith, to live by faith, to trust him, to love him, to believe in him. So we look to Jesus um, in the in the. Verses that are going to come um, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 10, you know, bleeds into chapter 11. And you've got this huge uh, list of all of these saints who are living by faith. It, does, it, it defines faith, it describes faith, and uses this phrase by faith 19 times. And so we're going to get all kinds of examples of what does it look like, even though we suffer, even though we're even persecuted, how do we hold fast to Jesus? How do we look to him who suffered in our place, who suffered to save us, to make us his possession so that he might become our possession, that we might be able to grow in things like compassion and joy and confidence, not because everything's great, but oftentimes in spite of the fact that everything's awful. Jesus is the one who gives us that ability to have joy because he endured such things for the joy set before him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uniting us to Jesus so that our, our joy, our compassion, our, our confidence might grow even in the midst of adversity uh, and that we might be uh, properly recalibrated and oriented and, and uh, directed away from the idols of prosperity and security and comfort. These things that might even be the context in which joy and compassion and confidence just shrivel if we're trusting in anything besides you for our hope and for our joy. Jesus, please be with your people around the world, of course, especially those who are being persecuted, those who are suffering and be with us. Every single person in this room suffers. And we pray that you would be our treasure, that you would be our greatest possession, that you would fill us with your presence, that you would fill us with your comfort, and that you would even help us to overflow with these things so that we might provide comfort uh, to those around us who are suffering too. And we thank you for all the blessings of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.